Welcome back to another episode of Fantastic Books and How to Read Them. This week we are covering The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, chapters 28 32, which we were supposed to do with last week's episode, all as one larger episode, but there was just way too much to talk about. So we're going to tackle the second set of those chapters today. We read those in preparation for the last episode, so we might be a little hazy, but we'll get through it. I'm really excited about these chapters because Kavo finally leaves Tarbian. Yes, <laughs> finally. And the story like really, really gets going after this. Although, and I say this every time, but I feel like every chapter, I'm like, oh, yeah, the story's really starting now. And then the next chapter happens, and I'm like, all right, wow, it is really starting now. The action is crazy. And then the next chapter happens, and I'm like, <laughs> it's still going like more and more yeah, crazy. It's no, so good. Everything has its place and it's all been important, but I think really leaving Tarvian gives Kavot the opportunity to become who he's meant to be. Yeah, he finally gets reawoken. And um, I don't know. You, in a way, you kind of need to suffer a little bit in order to gain humility and grow as a person sometimes. Well, I don't feel like he has that much humility as no. a character despite all these really crappy things that have happened to him, but he definitely gets a lot of skills in Tarbian that are super useful for his life later on. Yeah. Most uh, important in my mind would just be, like, his ability to, like, explore and, like, find all the secret places yeah. in an area and, and, like, understand that, like, a place isn't just the buildings, but it's also the roofs and the sewers and, like, underneath and above and, like, all the nooks and crannies of it, so it all comes into play. Yeah. Um, but we're going to start right now. Oh, I did have an announcement, actually. We announced last week that we have our website up. This week, we finally have an Instagram account, which you can access from the website, or you can find us directly on Instagram at fantasticbookspod. It's mostly just pictures of pets and books together. So All the quality content. I was saying, that sounds like something that would be pleasant to you, which I don't know why it wouldn't. Go follow us over there. Because at the very least, you get to look at pictures of cute pets, which is what everybody wants. Featuring our cat, Kiki and Zelda. Alright, now I think we're ready to get into chapter 28, Telu's Watchful Eye. So this chapter opens with Kaboth waking up after he had heard the story about Cinder and kind of connecting all the dots about Lonnery. Cinder. Oh, not, I'm sorry, Lonry and Haliax. Yes. Uh, being the same, and then uh, his kind of like overwhelming realization that he'd encountered them, and he has some sort of destiny, but doesn't really know what to do. Yeah, no, he's like, it's tough because we have this cataclysmic moment where Kavolf's sleeping mind kind of reawakens, and he's like, oh my god, these aren't just stories. The things that happen to me are from legend. Like, Haliax murdered my parents. Yeah. And so, and then he's like, "Well, what do I do? Do I kill them? Do I find them? How do I find them? I don't even have like two coins to rub together. Like, what am I supposed to do?" And I really enjoy the realisticness of his practicality in this moment because I think in a lot of other fantasy books, it's like, "Great, now that my destiny's been outlined, let's go. Let's just up and leave everything." Yeah. Yeah, that always bothered me. But I think it's nice that for the first time, Kavot has something to live for. And he's back in it. He's back in the game. Yeah, so he wakes up and uh, right off the bat, the thing he has to live for is another Scarpy story because he's trying to, I think, 
his best course of action here is to gather more information. Yeah. But he realizes he overslept, so he hooks it to the half-mast part of the way through a story. Yeah. This story is about Selitos, who was the man with special vision, who was one like the king of Mirtorineal, and the one who Lanre encountered in the last story. Yeah, very uh, comparable to, like, Denethor. Yeah, we talked about him last time being really similar to Denethor. Yeah. But... Unlike Denethor, he doesn't burn his child on a pyre. (laughs) He tries to get revenge. So, because we've missed the front of the story, he is in front of Aleph, who I'm assuming is similar to, like, a high angel or a god. Although I'm a little bit confused because Telu seems like the supreme god, so I'm not sure exactly how Aleph falls in the hierarchy. And then there's this group of people with them called the Ruach. And Silitos is talking about how he needs to get revenge on Lonre. He can't wait for Lonre and his Shandrian to destroy all the other cities. In short, the story basically tells the beginning of what is to become the Emir. Right. The Ruach who joins Silitos, and I don't know if the Ruach are a people. I don't know if they're a fey group. I'm not clear who they are. Hey, Editing Anna here. I did a little bit of digging on the Ruach since we had recorded. So the Ruach were the people who inhabited Temerant before the current civilization in which Kaboth lives. But there are some interesting etymological connections to the word. So Ruach is a Hebrew word that also means spirit or wind. And it also shares a word origin with the word Ru, which is an Arabic word that's related to spirits. So, based on this, some people think that the Adima Ru are the descendants of the Ruach and therefore would be closely related to the Emir, and that there are several parallels between Kvoth being the embodied spirit of Telu, like there was Menda, the embodied spirit of Telu, and his ability to call the name of the wind, or in Telu's case, call the name of the Ruach who became the Emir. Whoever some of them are joins Salitos. So there's Kiriel, Dea, Endless, Gesa, Lekelte, Emmet, and Ordal. Oh, Andin was the last one. And they decide to join Salitos in fighting the Shandrian. And Aleph touches them and gives them you wings. Like- so some have wings of fire and shadow, some have wings of iron and glass, and some have wings of stone and blood. And then he speaks their true names, and they're ringed in a white fire. So it's very angelic in my mind. And like a rebirth. Yeah. And they have the ability to go where they wish. In my mind, this is the start of the Emir, the group that's sworn to fight the Shandrian. I don't know if the beginnings of the Emir were these more mythical creatures and then they have human followers or if these creatures have died out and then the modern right. Amir are just humans. And during Scarpy's story he even mentions like a parallel that um Tell who is kind of has a gives them his blessing to kind of go forth and like fight for the greater good. And the story kind of gets cut out by um 
Some town uh, priests of yeah, all Yeah, town priests and a justice. And these guys are just like the classic like corrupt priest abuser power and just run amok in Tarbian. So they cut Scarfy's story off, which... They're a type of character that sound really quite frequently in fantasy, I feel like. Yeah, they just suck. (laughs) They interrupt, which is, like, the one rule that Scarfy has is you can't speak while he's speaking. So immediately everyone's kind of shook, and all the kids run out except for uh, Kvothe. And, like, two other kids kids. who are, like, dumbstruck. Yeah. I'm just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I know, like, what's happening? Who interrupted... And so this part's actually kind of cool because it's like a telling priest and a justice. So this guy really has a lot of authority. Is he a priest and a justice or is it two separate guys? Two separate. One's a justice and one's a priest. I thought the justice was also through the church, but maybe I just misunderstood. It might be just a different like layer in the hierarchy. Oh, he could be, yeah. But he basically is now accusing Scarpy of heresy and... Which I don't understand. Scarpy is literally telling a story about the allies of Telu and how they do... His last sentence is, they mete out justice to the world and Telu is the greatest of them all. And that's where they're like, I've heard enough. You're saying too much. So I don't know if the heresy is that like there's creatures that are supposed to be equal to Telu and they don't believe in that. Or if they just want to be in control of all of the information about Telu and just kind of shut him down. But it's very, like, fake crime. Yeah. Uh, It just makes me mad. No, and it's funny because from what I kind of understand of this scene when I've read it is literally that there can only be one brand of the story of Telu and God and it's the churches and anything else is heresy. No good. Uh, Okay. And it's because people can recount stories, but only the church can do that in their word, in their book. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So we get these finks that are kind of running amok <laughs> at the masthead, giving Scarpy a hard time. I know, and the poor barkeep is like trying to be, totally gets cowed over. He's like, do you, uh, can I give you a drink? And then the guy's kind of a jerk and he's like, uh, we've taken vows against a drink. Like, we don't want that, but we'll take the money instead. Yeah, but there's also really, like, intense comment about it, too. Let me see. Uh, where he says some of our brothers have taken vows against the temptations of the flesh. Yeah, and it's like by drinking, they could basically be tempted to act upon their desires. I think temptations of the flesh are also, like, gluttony and anything bodily, really. Oh, okay. I don't know if it was, like... A snide jab of, like, priests doing terrible things to children or, like, that kind of deal. Ooh. Uh, considering it's the priest saying it, I am gonna guess no. Okay. But. Definitely know. misinterpretation, then. So after he says that, Kvothe catches Scarpy's eye. He gives him a little, like, half smile and a nod. And it's funny because Kvothe seems really concerned for him. And Scarpy's not particularly concerned for himself. No, Scarpy actually isn't even phased by the fact that this guy is a justice. And he kind of calls the justice and the priest out for being corrupt. Yeah, he's like, fine churchmen such as yourselves could find better things to do than arresting storytellers and extorting money from honest men. He's pushing it right back onto these two. Yeah. 
it's kind of intense because no one else would have like the backbone to do this. But then some crazy stuff happens. Scarpy has been hit. Um, the justice, because he hit him, and the priests have come to the point where they're like freaking out and losing control of the situation, which is why they hit him. And then Scarpy knows the man's name. He says, "Come now, airless." The justice goes really pale and looks very kind of concerned or whatever. He also says, um, he also says he has um, friends high up in the church. Yeah, and he also immediately says, it's not as if I expect uh, you to be bound off looking for Haliax in the seven yourself. Small deeds for small men. I imagine the troubles in finding a job small enough for men such as yourselves. <laughs> He's being really uh, snarky. Oh, him. yeah. He's like, you could pick trash or check the brothel beds for lace while you're visiting. He just, like, thinks these guys are small potatoes. Yeah, which means he must know the system pretty well if he knows that these people really don't have a lot of authority. Well, here's the crazy part. So the last sentence that Scarpy says is, you should run Kavoth. So already a big red flag that he knows Kavoth's name. And then he says, I have friends in the church who can help me. So my theory is that Scarpy is a member of the Amir, like high up in the church, and oh, is wow. sworn to secrecy, and the Amir know who Kavoth is. And I picked a lot of this up from fan theories that I've read. But the theory is that Scarpy, Ben, and um, the the man who came with Kavoth's troop when he was younger, who taught him all about the plants. Oh. Uh. His name started with an L. Anyway, that all three of those people were in here and were sent to meet Kvothe and kind of put him on a path and give him the knowledge that he needs. That's wicked cool. And I, I feel like because Scarpy also mentions that he has friends in the church who help can help him, it means he's very powerful within the church. Like, he's not concerned about the situation at all. Uh, the fact that he knows Kvothe's name is bizarre to me. Like, I have no idea where he would know it from. Yeah. Unless he had... Sought? Sought out Kvothe. <laughs> Uh, and knew exactly who he was. Or was just a powerful neighbor somehow. Maybe, but I think even with naming, you don't know someone's, like, regular Given name. name, yeah. Yeah, you know their, like, soul name. So I'm not really sure. But that is the theory that I read up on most recently, and I thought that was really fascinating. And we know that Scarpy makes it out of this, because in the beginning, Chronicler said he was going to meet Scarpy. So clearly Scarpy does know someone high up in the church, and was able to get out of this situation. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's the last we see of him, which is a bummer, because I really like his character. Uh, just the description of him is kind of like a weathered sea man with really brilliant blue eyes, just surrounded by like this swarm of children hanging out at a bar all day. I don't know why I think is really great. And his stories are obviously very instrumental in moving the plot forward, so it's a bummer that he is only in the book for a few chapters. Yeah. But that brings us to chapter 29, The Doors of My Mind. This chapter is very short, and this is kind of where, remember when Kavuth, his family first died, he talked about going through like the stages in your mind, like the doors of sleep, the doors of forgetfulness. So I think this chapter is named The Doors of My Mind because all his doors finally reopen and he's ready to like take on his destiny and change his life and accept a lot of facts as truth now that he's kind of reconciled them. And it's great, like, everything kind of floods past him, like, not just memories of, like, the, what the Chandra did to his family, but, 
you know, his experiences in life itself. He then thinks about his music and he's like, has it really been all these years since I've held a lute, since I've played my music? Ugh, I and know. And he's just so ready to, like, get out of this dump and, like, start living his life again. Yeah, and he said he finds the memories less bitter than before. So, like, all of these things that he cut out of his life because they just reminded him of his old life, he, like, accepts all of them all at once. And it's really emotional. Like, he cries. He just says, like, his mind is, like, feels like it's stretched and awoken and he's like ready to take on his destiny but then he's like i'm 15 what can i do yeah it's kind of a humbling moment like we've been saying it's very realistic how he approaches this problem but he does remember that haliax had said to cinder who keeps you safe so he puts two and two together and realizes the chandrian have enemies so he needs to figure out who the enemies are or, yeah, who the enemies of the Chandrian are, which is when he mentions the Amir, but he doesn't know where to find them. He then remembers, though, that, you know, the Bent wanted him to attend the university and that they have 10,000 upon thousands of books where if he gets admitted to the university, he can get that information. Yeah, so, so he says it's there's finally... really only one place left for him to go. Yeah. He gathers up his few possessions. He's got 27 coins, a sack, a rag blanket, a half a pine bottle with a cork in it full of water, a piece of canvas sailcloth, a pair of dice, one shoe, and the book Rhetoric and Logic from Ben. And I think it's great that he's been able to keep it safe for so long and just tucked away when he was finally ready for it. Yeah. And it's great. He, he holds it up to his face and it's got the smell of Ben's wagon. Like It feels like the last piece of his past and then he just reads the inscription Ben wrote in it, which was Kavoth, defend yourself well at the university, make me proud, remember your father's song, which is why I think Ben may also be an Amir, because that song is really, really important. That's a good point, why I never considered that. Why else would he bring it up? Be wary of folly, your friend Abinthi. And that's the end of chapter 29. Chapter 30, The Broken Binding. So, I love this chapter. Uh, it's so good. So <laughs> we have Kavoth going over to this bookstore and he approaches the counter uh, carrying rhetoric and logic and he basically is asking to pawn the book. This isn't a pawn shop, right? No, it's a bookstore. And so Kavoth, you know, starts interacting with the shopkeeper and he's asking him how much he can get for the book. And the guy just straight up is like snubbed. Yeah, he, a couple of jots, which is like two pennies. Yeah, and he looks at Kavot because, you know, at this time, Kavot's still like a dirty looking street urchin. The guy assumes that he just stole the book and that he's illiterate, so he's like. Well, he probably hasn't bathed in what, three years? His yeah. hair has grown in. Later, he, he mentions he's wearing a burlap sack for a shirt. So I'm sure he looks real good. Yeah, he's a little bit just straight up like street urchin mode. <laughs> he's a good bargainer though <laughs> oh yeah he's great you know the shopkeeper lowballs him and Kavoth says it's worth um, two at least two talents and he wants the option to buy it back for a month and so the shopkeeper kind of laughs and says it's not a pawn shop and slides a book back towards Kavoth. Kavoth then says how about 20 days so the shopkeeper you know takes a pause he does look through the book because he does recognize it as like a well written and Good book to own. And he pulls out the talents to give to Kavoth. Everything 
Kabut's instincts were telling him just like just like grab the money, and he kind of has to like step back and use his head finally. Now that he's kind of out of like survival mode of living. Yeah, because he's just been like scrounging for years at this point. Yeah, and so he says to the shopkeeper that he'll need a receipt. And then the shopkeeper gives him a fake receipt. Oh yeah, it was great. (laughs) He like death glares at Kavoth and then basically writes on there, "Um, by signing here, I attest to the fact I can't neither read nor write. And so Kavoth just being just like a smart aleck. Just a precocious kid. Yeah, more of a smart aleck, I guess. (laughs) Kind of cocky. Yeah, just totally owns this guy. It's great. He puts um, DD as if they were initials. Designated driver. Uh, designated dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> and so good thing the guy asked what D stands for. You know. Oh yeah. Because if he just like took the slip immediately, that would have been it. Yeah, like goodbye. Like wait, come back. Kavod does answer. He says the D stands for defeasance. It means to render something null and void, usually a contract. The second D is for decrepitate? De- yeah? <laughs> Can you neither read nor write? I guess not, <laughs> so no receipt for me. Decrepitation? <laughs> I can't even pronounce. Decrepitate. Oh, thank you. And decrepitation is a punishment for forgery in Junpui. which is uh, false receipts would fall in that category. So he's just being, you know, like a smartass. He made no move to, like, take the money. He just kind of stared at the shopkeeper, and... I like that the guy's just only response is, this isn't Junpui. Yeah, not even, like, oh, you actually are, like, capable and pretty intelligent. Uh, he gives it to him. He laughs and says, you convinced me, so then he gets the proper receipt. Yeah. Uh, which is nice, because he actually lets Kabuth right in, and Kabuth totally takes advantage of him, too. Doesn't he end up, like... Being able to buy it back for a little bit less. Yeah. He wrote... That's all right. So, um, the man sold it to him for two talents, and then Kavoth wrote on his receipt that he would be able to buy it back for two pennies. I don't know how much a talent is. I assumed a talent is probably equivalent to, like, a $100 bill. Any guesses on your part? Uh, it's hard to say, because, like, these are currencies that are completely different from anything that's, like, close to American currency. I know, but, like, how much does a talent buy? Well, a talent... <sighs> because at the university, sometimes their admission is, like, six talents, which doesn't seem... I think it's a lot. Like, that it's much? Like, but then how is this book There's, talents? like, copper penny... There's, like, jots to, like, pennies. And, and shims. The way I think of it is, like, jots are the equivalent of, like, quarters. Okay. And, like, the pennies are dollars. Talents would be, like... 20s? I feel like they've got to be more than 20s. Maybe. Right? They're like they're clearly a high value. Maybe like 50s? Maybe. $50? Yeah, I mean, for a really good book. That seems reasonable. I'd have to see. Maybe they have a whole like page on like currency. They probably do. We should probably cover it at some point. Hey, we are going to cover it at some point, and that point is right now. Editing Anna here, and after that little conversation, I did a little bit of research on the different currencies of Kvothe's world. What I realized is that there are three different systems of currencies, which is what Sam and I hadn't originally realized in our discussion there. So there's Kialdish currency, and those are the Shim, Drab, Jot, Talent, and Mark. And those are cast of 
metal and the metal that they are made of is what they're worth. There's the currency of the Commonwealth, which is where Kvothe currently is, and those are the Iron Penny, Hay Penny, or Half Penny, Copper Penny, Silver Penny, and the Common. And uh, most of this money is not accepted outside of the Commonwealth. So once Kvothe leaves Tarbian, we don't see some of those types of monies again. And then there is the currency of Vintus, which um, has its own separate currency, and this is what's used in the Waystone Inn. So these are the half penny, penny, which are both made of copper, bit, quarter bit, round, halved, noble, which are all made of silver, and the real, royal, and five real piece, which are all made of gold. So there's several different systems. And just for some clarification, someone once asked Patrick Rothfuss at a book signing how much a silver talent was worth in his mind, and he responded that it was worth about $1,000, which seems like a a lot, obviously. Like, that book should be not $2,000. But later on, when Kavoth buys a full set of clothing, if you think about how much it costs to have a suit tailored to you, it would run you about $1,000. So that makes sense. I think it's kind of iffy, but that gives you a little bit more clarification. Either way, what it comes down to is Kavot agrees money. to trade his book for some mad money, as you put it. <laughs> and then also, be able to buy it back for pennies, but he says it doesn't matter because even at the end of the two span, he's not going to have enough money to buy the book back. He hopefully won't be in Tarbian, so it's kind of a loss. Like He has to trade the book away knowing he's most likely not going to get it back, which yeah. sucks. Though I love in, like, classic Kavoth fashion, though, he's, like, all satisfied. He's like, you know, I almost feel bad for the fact that I just stole a bunch of his pens and ink when he wasn't looking. I know, but then he, the only reason he doesn't give them back is because there's no convenient way to, like, put them back without being noticed. Yeah, so just just awesome. I know, he's got slick fingers at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, we talked about all those skills he picked up in Tarbian. Pickpocketing and, like, sleight of hand is... Definitely super important for like his character abilities. Later yeah. On. Um, did you have anything else left to say about the broken binding? No. <laughs> I just like how cheeky he is. Um, yeah, he's back to being like his true self. Yeah, I think this was finally the last. Like his mind is fully awake. Chapter thirty-one: The nature. Of nobility. And what a chapter it is. I love this chapter. I say that about every chapter, but... I really appreciate the fact that one of the first things he does is... Well, he buys a purse to keep his money in, but he goes to get a real breakfast. And there's... uh, So I used to go hiking a lot, like backpacking trips that were multiple days with my friends. And the thing we would always do when we finally, like finished our backpacking trek and came out of the mountains was to stop at a diner and get a full, huge, hot breakfast. And it was always so sad. <laughs> it was always so satisfying. Like, it'd be like, pancakes, omelets, hot chocolate, French toast, like, hash browns, fries, toast, like, everything. And some people would just be like, give me three hamburgers for breakfast. Like, it was always just, like, a feast. And it was so good. So I appreciate the eggs and ham and bread with honey and milk. I know, just like the perfect, like, out of poverty, like, breakfast of champions moment. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, he says it costs five iron pennies, so I guess a penny's probably about a dollar, if you think about what, like, a diner breakfast would cost. Yeah. Or how much those things would cost if you bought them at the store. But yeah, just, like, such a successful breakfast moment. Successful breakfast. (laughs) I liked it. He did say it felt really strange eating at a table with, like, people around him and being waited on. So, he's definitely still out of practice being part of society again. Like, he's not on the edges of society anymore. He feels weird. Yeah. Like, kind of reinvigorating himself. Oh, here's where he talks about what he's been wearing. His shirt is an old burlap sack, and his pants are made out of canvas, and very, very large. <laughs> they smell the smoke, grease, and stagnant alley water, and they were held up with the length of rope. He has no shoes. The finest fashion. All right, looking real good. So he has a mini predicament of if he should buy clothes or try to find a bath first, because if he bathes, he has to put his stinky clothes on. And that's how he comes to this very clever scheme of his. Well, first the bath. Right, so that's that's what he decides. He's, he's going to go bath first. Um, and he actually just asks at the inn that he's currently at if he can have a bath. Um, and they trade him a bath for a couple hours of work. So he offers to clean the hearth and then do the dishes later. And he does that. He scrubs himself down. Oh, this dude is just rejuvenated. This is like three <laughs> years worth of like grind cake to him. I know. But it's it's cool. This is the first time he looks at himself in the mirror. So this is actually kind of the first time we get a description of what he looks like as a character now that he's aged into teenagehood. Yeah. Adolescence. Thanks. <laughs> he's, he's talking from his own perspective, but he thinks he looks like some noble's son. So he's... Got lean and fair face. His hair is shoulder length and straight, and we know that it's that bright red color. So that's kind of what we, uh, what we can imagine Kaboth looking like. And here we have it, the best part. Oh yeah, this part's absolutely awesome. So all his years of stage training kind of just prepare him for this whole montage, and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So Kaboth is literally just walking the streets of Tarvian in a towel. Just, like, stone-faced and angry, and he approaches father and son, and he just snaps at them, demanding where he can find some decent clothes. Yeah, he, he, like, insults them, too. Like, he, like, looks directly at the guy's shirt, and he goes, clothes, and then looks at him and goes, I mean decent clothes. Yeah, not even just, like, anything at this point, please. (laughs) And he goes, is that the only place about... And the guy's like, well, there's... And Kaboth just, like, waves this guy into silence. And he goes, just point while you still have your wits about you. Just, like, I know. He's brat. really just, like, embodied this character uh, who he's basing off of Dunsty, an insufferably petulant little boy with an important father who was one of the parts he used to play in the troupe. I think the fact that he's not only using his stage training, but remembering fondly parts of his past truly shows that, like, He's back. A boy's back. <laughs> so he makes his way over to this place called Bentley's where he's going to be trying to get some clothes and just so dramatic and throws the doors open and just storms in. Immediately, fetch me a robe. You lack wit. And then the classic line from the office, did I stutter? <laughs> Have you lost your mind? <laughs> I know, that's what I always think of. Yeah, and uh, he plays the classic do you have any idea who I am card? Uh, Which, having worked in retail, is like... <laughs> I know. Ugh. Horrible. 
so, like just literally all the Karens. I I love the actual the passage where he describes uh, the situation, saying that nobles' sons are one of the great destructive forces of nature, like floods or tornadoes. So the best thing to do when one happens to you is just grin and bear it and minimize the damage by like agreeing and doing everything the noble wants and then uh, ho- hoping for the best, really. Yeah. Poor old Bentley is like running around trying to help Kaboth and sewing as fast as possible to make him an outfit because he's sitting there with no clothes on being a big jerk. Literally. And then just like fully played to the role, he's like, well, you might as ask, you might as well ask what's happening. Like, what happened? I know you're dying of curiosity. I know. He really lays it on thick. The guy just like, sure. Uh, what happened? Like, if, if you want to say so. Kabotha really just kind of plays the part well. He's basically saying how a prostitute stole his clothes. <laughs> and then demanded uh, his all his money. Yeah. Or what's, what's the stupid line? He says, a gentleman is never far from his purse. <laughs> I know. What a brat. <laughs> just so dumb. So, it's funny, though, because he says he makes the men miserable, but tried to give him that story so that it was at least something to tell his friends. Like, oh, how thoughtful. Yeah, right? Yeah, so basically he says he he did not give in to the prostitute's demands, and that's how he ended up at poor old Bentley's. Naked as the day he was born. <laughs> After about, what, like half an hour to an hour of him being like insufferable and complaining and questioning the quality of fabrics. Hemming and hawing and tapping his foot like finally gets an outfit and then says well get me home I suppose. Yeah. And so this part's great because Kabul says all just such a bright. He's like how much for your trouble Bentley? And so Bentley then says like one talent and two. Kavos, you know, starts lacing up his shirt, doesn't say anything, slowly starts to gather his money, and then literally Bentley goes, Sorry, sir, I forgot who I was dealing with. One even would do nicely. That's a crappy thing, though. It's like, clearly if you're a noble, you have more than enough money to pay in full price, but you scare people so much that they, like, give you a deal, which is... Which actually really worked out for Kavos. Yeah, it did work out for because he has hardly anything, but just kind of sad about the ways of the world. Exactly. But he goes back to the inn where he took his bath. The innkeeper doesn't recognize him, which has got to be a really nice feeling to finally be, like, so clean that you look like a completely different person. Yeah. Uh, but he he returns the towel and offers to do the dishes, which is actually very sweet, but ends up just paying for his bath and uh, collects the items that he left behind. So... Oh, it's the pens and ink that he stole and the receipt from the bookstore. That's it. And he actually mentions at this point, and it's kind of an aside statement, but he mentions how much a tavern is like a comforting place and how one day he'd like to own a tavern as fine as this one. And we do see that he ends up owning one. Yeah. The Waystone Inn. So it's nice to see that he does get his wish, but I think unfortunately the Waystone is not really where he wants to be. Yeah, it's not a... It's not, he doesn't have it in the way that you think he'd want to have it. Yeah, I think he's been forced there. And that's kind of a lot with all the things that kind of are predicted within the story, which mm-hmm. is really cool. 
And the back of the book where they have like the whole story of Kavod and like how he's stolen princesses back from Sleeping Barrel Kings and that whole aside. Mm-hmm. Everything that's listed that we do know about, it's worded in a way in which what actually happens from what it's like listed, how it happens are two completely different ways. Yeah. So it's really interesting that even with the Waystone Inn and everything else, it's not how you'd imagine. Yeah, it's not like a happy ending. Yeah. Of like a place to retire to. Exactly. I think that's what a lot of the whole book is supposed to be, though, because Chronicler did at the beginning say, there's all these myths around you, like I'd like to set the record straight, and so in both narrating his story, which is the book, those we get the like truth of it, which is why on the back this... The paragraph describing Kaboth is very much based on the myth part of it. Yeah. And it does give you a lot of foreshadowing about what happens to him, because he mentions specific events, which is kind of cool. Yeah, he says, I'd count myself lucky to have an inn as nice as one of these, as this one when I've grown up. And then he kind of makes a declaration that he's going to be heading towards the university. Yep. Um, and asks the best place to find a caravan leaving for the north. Chapter 32. Coppers, Cobblers, and Crowds. Uh, this is the last chapter we'll be covering. No, this chapter is great. So, Kavot is heading towards Hillside. and Which is where, the last time he went there is when he got beat up around Christmas time, right? Or not yeah. Christmas, whatever. Midwinter. The pageant. The pageant. And so, as he's walking, he has this weird growing suspicion and like alertness in the back of his head. He's getting, like, really anxious and creeped out. He's, like, looking around his shoulder, and he's kind of getting skeeved out. And so he runs into a back alley and, like, catches his breath. He thinks he's being followed or pursued, but it ends up not. Right. And so he kind of sidesteps into an alley a few more times so he realizes that this is the first time he's been part of a crowd before. Like, he's used crowds as, like, a cover for when he's, like, sneaking around, like, pickpocketing, or he's walked through crowds, or... Well, that's, like, what I was saying when he was eating the breakfast, was that it felt so strange to be, like, seated among other people eating and not eating by yourself, and having the time to actually sit down for a meal and not be worried about, like, other people following you or trying to steal what you have. So he definitely has cross to this kind of invisible social barrier between, like, being a part of society in the city and being on the outskirts of it. And it's, I don't know, it's just really interesting that he feels like he's still being watched or being followed and he still has his hackles raised and is very nervous about things. But because he has this feeling, he ends up ducking through a door and walking into a shoe shop. Uh, and this part's just wonderful. I know, it really warms warms my heart. And so, when he walks into the shoe shop, he's, like, kind of greeted by this old man. And it's, like, really just pleasant when he's like, let me guess, you need shoes. <laughs> and Kavon just looks down, and his feet are now clean, but since he's been walking around all day, they're just dusty. Well, they're also thick and callous because he hasn't had shoes in... Over three years. Like... Yeah, two, at least two years. And um, so many previous chapters about him, like, dreaming of shoes. Oh, I know. Especially, I have always have cold feet, so, like, not having shoes in the winter would be my worst nightmare. Oh, my God, it'd be horrible. I'd probably get frostbite. This 
shopkeeper kind of it's almost like a goldilocks like moment he's like how about these shoes and like too tight how about oh, I these thought shoes? he did that so that Kvothe wouldn't feel bad just asking for the cheapest pair of shoes. I think it's like a combination he's like, let of me the put two. on these fancy shoes. No, 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 those are too tight. He tries to give him like a nice treatment, even though he knows this kid has like no money and probably just needs like your cheapest, most yeah, accessible def- pair of shoes. But he definitely spares his dignity. Yeah, he really like pulls a solid. The fanciest like purple uh, velvet ones. Yeah. Like, he pulls them out, and he's like, how about these? No, no, they wear out way too fast. I know that that would be no good for you. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just really nice that he's not like, here's, like, a cheapest, lowest quality shoe. Yeah. Here you go. And then, literally, this is, like, the line. Oh, I love it. He's like, you can tell a lot about a person by their feet. Some men come near smiling, laughing, shoes all clean and brushed, socks all powdered up. But when those shoes are off, their feet smell just fearsome. Those are the people that hide things. They've got a bad smelling secret and they try and hide them just like they try and hide their feet. It never works though. Only to stop your feet from smelling is let them air out a bit. Could be the same thing with secrets. I don't know about that though. I just know about shoes. I don't know. I feel like this guy has some kind of secret power. Yeah, seriously. Like, I don't know who he is, but I want his backstory. But then he goes, now you have old souls for a boy so young. Scars, calluses, uh, feet like these you can run barefoot all day on stone and not need shoes. A boy your age only gets these feet one way. Uh, uh, that guy's so courteous though, like, about the whole situation. Yeah, just, it's so pure. And so he, uh, he goes on and he's like, these pair are brand new and they cost a talent too. Which I don't think both has enough money left for that at this point. No. And then he pointed out another pair of shoes that were a little bit more worn in. And he goes, now these shoes, on the other hand, are used. And I don't sell used shoes. Which is totally just, like, him giving him, like, a freebie. It was like... Yeah, it's complete, like, here's a free pair of shoes, but without saying, take my charity. Yeah. I don't need your charity. Yeah, I don't need your charity. But some- and then he's, like, even so nice to just, like, give both like, a moment of privacy to, like, put his shoes on and, like, walk out without feeling pressured or anything. And I'm really glad that Kvothe leaves a couple of coins on his way out just to, like, pay kindness forward. Yeah, and I just love the line. It's like, why? Because pride is a strange thing. And because generosity deserves generosity in return. But mostly because it felt like the right thing to do, and that's reason enough. That little scene in the... The shoe shop is one of my favorites in the whole book just because of how long Kvothe has suffered and been really, really prideful. And I'm sure he could have gotten, like, handouts and charity if he tried, but... And he did. Like, he he has um, Trappist and he begs, but it's never, like, a humane moment. And this guy, like, really looks at him and feels pity and then, like, really, really helps him out. In a way that's not pushing charity on him. Right. And it feels like a very real situation. Yeah, no, it's it's very wholesome. Um, but then we jump ahead a little bit, and Kavoth is now in the square where all the Wagoneers are, and he's he's trying to catch a ride north to the university town. Yeah, he meets a man named Rowan, and this guy... Is just like a classic 
Very gruff. Yeah. Very just rough like around stern. the edges. <laughs> like, you can ride in the wagon if there's space, or you can sleep underneath it. Lunch is just bread. If the wagon gets stuck, you push it. Yeah, like, you behave or you get left behind, all that stuff. And so Kavok's just willing to do whatever it takes to kind of get going, get out of Tarvian. He then, really cool moment, speaks to Rowan and Siru and thanks him for allowing him to be close to his family. And just, like, immediately, like, respect values. Like, I don't even know where Kavok learned that phrase, but it must have been, like, deep, deep in his brain. Yeah, but... maybe one of the plays... Or, like, from Ben or something. I don't know, but it was definitely really cool. Kavoth makes one last stop before he departs Tarvian. And this... Ah! Us. <laughs> like, it's just so emotional. It's great. He heads towards Trappist's basement for yeah. one more time. As he's, but it's crazy. I was saying, yeah. As it's uh, as he's entering, that kid tries to pickpocket him, and he like without even thinking twice, just like nonchalantly, like slaps behind his leg and like whacks the kid's hand back. And, and he's jostled because he's he thinks we don't steal from each other here. Travis's basement is it's like sacred, the sacred ground for us, like lost boys. And then he remembers that. He doesn't look like one of them anymore. So. Yeah, they don't realize it's him. He makes his way into Trappus's basement, and Trappus is just helping all the other troubled kids and tending to them. And he's not really looking up from what he's doing and just kind of calling to the other kids, giving them instructions to help, like, some of the other kids. Yeah, he's just doing, like, like giving the handouts and stuff. But then, like, without even skipping a beat, assigns Kavoth Like a task, a task. to do. And doesn't question his change in appearance, doesn't not recognize him the way other people did. And it's just really sweet because there's a line where he says, Trappus never saw the clothes, only the child inside them. Ugh, that's pure. I know. So Trappus is just like a good soul and always sees the faces, the souls inside these like kids who are passed over by every other part of society and He's just really proud of Kavoth for making it out and gives him a hug. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Kavoth tells Trappus about the place where he used to live under, like, the three roofs. Oh, yeah, and tells him to go get the supplies he had there, but it's really, like, like it could very be a home honorable for someone of else. him to do that. And it's also kind of a closure thing, too, like, he'll never need that again, so yeah. he's giving it up for someone else. Oh, so true. So true. And... A really great part, Trappist says, I'm always glad to see one of you get away. I know you'll do just fine for yourself, but you can always come back if you need to. And you're just like, oh. oh it's like a single tear. Like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's so good. And that is Kavos' great escape from Tarbian. Uh, and next chapter, we will follow him as he travels away from the city and gets to the university, which is an feels like an entirely new plot part of the way through the book. So it's yeah. really exciting. There's new characters, there's new locations, all sorts of new everything as he's trying to start at the university and learn all of his schooling stuff, but also side research the Chandrian and then make friends and survive on his own. Yeah. So, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, stay happy and healthy and happy reading. 
podcast was recorded by Anna Opushinsky and Sam Furman, edited by Anna Opushinsky, produced by Anna Opushinsky and Sam Furman, with webpage and artwork designed by Anna Opushinsky.